I thought we'd just get cracking. I'm glad that we actually used that microphone for something this morning. When it was really, and I saw it, I thought, what's that there for? I was like, is this my chance to preach sort of see a style back to the audience, you know, because they're too embarrassed for people to see my face? But no, that's what it's there for. Okay, we're continuing in our series working through the book of First Samuel. Uh, we've only had chapter 16 read to us, but we are covering chapter 16, chapter 17, uh, which is David and Goliath, a very uh, familiar part of First Samuel, as well as the first five verses of chapter 18. As you can imagine, there are a lot of verses. We will not be able to have time to go into all of it into detail. There might even be some verses that spark your curiosity, that some of which I've already spoken about with someone before the service. Um, so if there's something we don't touch on and you have some questions, um, do have a chat to me, because it probably was in my thoughts, but not um, concise to fit on the paper. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the examples of those who have gone before us. Uh, we thank you for the way that you reveal your character and you reveal your way of salvation through the scriptures, and that they have played out in historical events on this earth as Jesus Christ came to lay down his life as a substitute for sinful mankind, that all who would turn and trust in him will be called a child of God and dwelt by your spirit and have an eternity with you. We pray that we would learn the very things that you inspired the writers to write these passages for our benefit and Lord that we would apply them and that we would walk in humble obedience to you as a result. We ask in Jesus name. Amen. Now if I was to ask you what would your high school teachers say about what you, they thought you would be after high school? What would they say? Or imagine if your high school teacher's assessment of your future determined what would be your future reality. What would it look like? Now, I don't know exactly what my high school teachers would say. I can guarantee that wouldn't be pastor of a church. I still remember the looks on some of the teachers' faces when I went back a few years afterwards representing and working with Youth for Christ. And they're like... Isn't that the guy we suspended twice? And sometimes Sarah and I have conversations about, I wonder what jobs our kids will do when they get older. Now, you, you kind of take a bit of a thing, or oh, they like this type of thing, or they've got this type of character, they've shown a degree of aptitude in this way, and we think, maybe they'd be suited to this type of role or not. Now, it's kind of, based upon what we see, we kind of make presumptions or conclusions about future outcomes and I think we evaluate future possibilities based upon what we can measure and see quite frequently sometimes it's wise to do that but it's also not the full picture we know that we we live in a world in which Jesus is king that he's carrying out his good purposes in all things Therefore, what we can see is only a very small glimpse of the big picture of the reality of God's kingdom being played out. 
And we believe in a God who has all power, who's carrying out his purposes, a God who indwells his people, therefore the possibilities of what he can and will do through his people is not limited by what we see. Now in our passage we're looking at this morning, it's chock-a-block, full of things that by human estimation are unlikely. But we see how God brings about his purposes, his way, through means that we would never have personally seen happening ourselves. Because what we see is when God chooses somebody, he enables them to carry out that very function for which he has chosen them for. He's not hindered by the limitations of the the circumstances or the environment or the personal aptitude of the person. He carries out his purposes. He guides and he equips his people for that purpose. We look at things that are unlikely by sight that come reality in God's plan. An unlikely choice in the first 13 verses, chapter 16. An unlikely role in verses 14 to 23. An unlikely victory in chapter 17. An unlikely ally in the first five verses of chapter 18. And we're going to wrap it up with looking at a reality check. Firstly, an unlikely choice. 1 Samuel 16, 1 to 13. Now Saul was the first king in Israel. We've seen in previous chapters the people had demanded to Samuel, give us a king like all of the other nations. A king that will judge us and he will go out and fight our battles for us. And God provided them a king according to their request, the the king that fit everything they were looking for. Saul was introduced as a man who was handsome, wealthy, head and shoulders above everyone. As far as the eye could see, he was the perfect fit for everything they were looking for. But as he was publicly announced in chapter 10, Samuel's told them what the nature of a king who would serve over God's people should be like. He not only spoke it to the people, but he wrote it down, probably declaring those things that were outlined in Deuteronomy chapter 17, where it says, the king who will serve over the people will honour and fear and serve the Lord and will meditate on his word day and night and write a copy of it, study it day by day. But Saul, we have seen, who's someone who doesn't always operate in that way, who has at times set himself up really much like a king like all the other nations, where he deems himself to be an ultimate and independent authority, even defying God. Last week, a couple of times back in verse 23, but also specifically in verses 26 to 28, Samuel says to Saul, I'm not going with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbour of yours who is better than you. Can't imagine Saul would have taken that too nicely. You're not going to have the kingdom given to someone else and someone else who's better than you. And even though Saul had been rejected as king, still for many years ahead, Saul continues to serve 
in that role as king. And the chapter 16 begins saying to Samuel not to grieve Saul. Don't grieve what I have rejected. God's purposes in using Saul are coming to an end. Don't grieve and mourn that which is from behind. Whenever you look backwards, the only thing it's likely to do is to lead you backwards. It says, don't focus on what God has stopped working through. Look forward and go. Fill your horn with oil and go with where God is moving. We can be inclined the same way. To look back and grieve or mourn the things that we have given up in our pursuit of Christ. And have our focus there. And it never guides us forward. never helps us go on in the Christian life. If we have have focus there or mourning those things. For Samuel to stop grieving Saul, he says, fill your horn and go. Why fill your horn and go? Because God says, I have provided for myself a king amongst the sons of Jesse. God has provided for himself a king. Saul was the king provided for the people to meet their requests. God says, I'm going to provide a king for myself from the sons of Jesse. Now Samuel knows Saul well enough to know that this isn't going to go down well. How on earth can I go off to anoint another king? Saul's not going to be impressed. He's already been told that he's going to be replaced by somebody else. He's, he's going to want to hinder that. I mean, not only can Saul do something, he could, he could command the armies to come and wage war against Samuel. So he's told, take a heifer for a sacrifice. Invite Jesse's family to come along. And as he goes there, even the, the elders of Bethlehem are suspicious. Like they see the prophet of God coming out to their town. Like we know that Samuel had a circuit of different cities that he went to, but Bethlehem wasn't one of them. And they think, have you come here in peace or is there there's something wrong? So Samuel tells them to consecrate themselves, invite Jesse and his sons to come together for a sacrifice. Now we know previously when Saul was put before the people, they thought, this is our man. Look at him. He's massive. He's wealthy. He's the one we want. Now surely Samuel, who's been presented as being such a great and godly man throughout this book, is going to do a better job. We read in verses 6 and 7, when they came, he looked on Eliab, that's the eldest son, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look upon the appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as the man sees. The man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Even Samuel, a godly man, needed to be reminded by God, don't make all your judgments based upon what you can see. The Lord looks upon the heart. Even after Samuel's had seven of Jesse's sons come before him, God has said, that's not it. And Samuel, presuming that all of the sons have passed before him, he says, is there any more? Because God's just saying, no, no, no. 
And there was another son, another son which Jesse didn't even think was important enough to bring along to the sacrifice, who's out looking after the sheep, who's David. Now, he's described as being a ruddy man. This doesn't mean that Kevin Rudd has made his comeback in the book of First Samuel. It's not a word we use commonly. The word ruddy just means red, whether he had reddish skin or whether he was a ginger. Had beautiful eyes, he was handsome. And as soon as he's seen, the Lord says to Samuel, this is the one, anoint this one. You know what the funny thing is? He's anointed before all of his brothers, before the elders of Bethlehem, but nobody other than Samuel knows what he's being anointed for. David doesn't even know what he's being anointed for. All they can just presume that somehow David is being set aside to be used by the Lord for something. And even though he's been chosen, anointed, and receives the Spirit, as the Spirit rushes upon him to enable him for that service, Samuel returns to Ramah. So how does David come onto the scene? Well, it happens through quite an unlikely role. We've just been told that the Spirit of the Lord has come upon David, but now the focus goes back to Saul, where it says the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, the Spirit was taken from Saul. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, unlike our experience where it is a permanent indwelling, the Holy Spirit was given by God to, to use for a particular purpose, to enable him for a particular task. And because of his rebellion and sin, God withdrew his spirit from Saul. He'd finished his purposes working through Saul. And you can understand why then, when you read Psalm 51, when David sins with Bathsheba, he prays to God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Like he's seen it happen to, to Saul as a result of his sin. But for us who are in Christ who are sealed and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. That's not a fear that we have. But probably the troubling half of that verse is a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented Saul. Now, if God is perfect and good, how is it that a harmful spirit comes from him? Well, God is the creator and therefore the ruler of absolutely everything. He was the creator and he's still the ruler and authority even over Satan. Everything he is the ruler of. And often he will take that which he has created and use it for his purposes. He has the ability to direct and use even evil spirits to achieve his purposes. Amos writes in chapter 3, verse 6, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Or Job says, shall we receive good from the Lord and not evil? Even the author of Hebrews in chapter 12 reminds us that God disciplines even those whom he loves. Now Saul's servants, they perceive that the affliction and the suffering that he's having is the result 
of a harmful spirit. And they put forward a plan. You need to find someone who is skillful at playing the liar. Now, I don't know how many skillful liar players there were, but it appears that amongst Saul's servants, there was one man that they were familiar with. Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valour, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. It's the recently anointed David, the one who is the neighbour who is better than Saul, who will take his kingdom, just so happens to be the skillful liar player that Saul's servants were aware of. Described as a man of valour, a man of war, and you kind of wonder about that because his brothers question his own ability a little bit later on. Is it just because of the family that he belonged to? Or is it to do with the order of the way things are which are recorded in 1 Samuel? But most significantly at the end there, and the Lord is with him. People recognise something about David that the Lord is with him. Whether that's the result of the Spirit having come upon him and it's so apparently obvious the transformation that has taken place. So whenever Saul was afflicted, David would play his lyre and Saul was refreshed. And much to our surprise, this neighbour who is better than Saul, who will take away his kingdom finds favour in the sight of Saul. Not only is he a great and soothing liar player, Saul gives him the role of being his armour bearer, which is a really, really high position. It's almost the second highest position. It's an unlikely role for David, being a servant and a blessing to the king who doesn't want to be replaced as the king. Now, we didn't read chapter 17, It's a very familiar chapter, David and Goliath, where it speaks of a very unlikely victory. Remember what was said about Saul before he was even chosen? God said to Samuel, he will save my people from the Philistines. But in chapter 14, verses 52, it says that there was fighting against the Philistines for the entirety of Saul's life. They didn't come completely subdued until the time of David. And once again, they approach again from law, sorry, for war. The Philistines were in Soko and Israel was in the valley in Elah, which you see the, those two locations in the middle of the map with a modern picture there on the right. And it wasn't even so much nation line up against nation. It speaks about a champion which literally translates a term, a man who is in the middle. And Goliath was that man standing in the middle, putting forward his threats. Now, it's pretty hard not to comment upon what you see, isn't it? Like he's described in terms of all of his height and all of his armour. But when you see that description, it's, it's hard not to be intimidated by it. He's described in such a way where his height is 2.9 metres, or if you're old school, 9 foot 6. To give you a picture there, if you probably can't read all the details there, that one in the middle is Shaquille O'Neal, that's 7 foot 11. And one on the left is them having a guess of what a young David would be at 5 foot 2, but that's 
a guess at best. But what an opponent. You've got that size and the way in which his own coat is described is as being 57 kilos. I can tell you now, if I was wearing a coat that weighed 57 kilos, you've got nothing to worry about. I'm not going anywhere. But this warrior puts out a challenge. Send out your warriors. If he can defeat me, yeah, we'll, we'll happily serve you. But if I defeat him, then you Israelites must serve us Philistines. Who would confront and go into battle against a guy two foot nine with all of that armour? Well, we see the response of the Philistines, verse 11. Saul and all of Israel, when they heard these words of the Philistine, were dismayed and greatly afraid. This warrior king that God said he will defeat the Philistines just alongside all of the people, dismayed and greatly afraid. I mean, what hope is there going to be if, if the warrior king has got no idea what to do? Well, David comes back onto the scene again. It's his brothers who have lined up for war along with the Israelites. And what's David's role? He's pretty much the errand boy bringing out what I love. He's bringing out cheese to people out in the battle. Because when you're in battle, you need cheese and bickies. You've got, you've got to have time for cheese and bickies. And between his going back and watching the sheep and bringing supplies out to the soldiers... On one of those journeys, he hears the threats which, which Goliath is making. He's been threatening it for days. It's got all of Israel in panic. But somehow it catches David's attention. And he hears people say, the king will reward greatly the one who can defeat him. And he's like, what was that? David said to the men who were with him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That's such a different response to the Philistines. The Philistines are panicking and in fear. They're worried, what's it going to do to our nation? What's it going to do to us? David's perspective is, who is this man that he would defy the living God. He's not, he's not that worried about what it does to the nation. He's more offended that this man would stand in defiance against the living God. He sees the same massive warrior that everybody else sees. But he also realises in terms of this perspective of the, of the almighty God, this is nothing. Now his own brothers probably think he's a bit of an inconvenience. If I could paraphrase, they're kind of like, shut up, squirt. Why don't you go home and look after your little sheepies? Like They're like, what are you doing here? You're just here to watch a battle. You're like that little kid after your mum and dad have put you to bed who keeps peeking around the corner because they like what's on TV and they don't want to go to sleep. But he's not deterred by the mockery of his brothers. He says, your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. 
And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Despite what looks to the eye to be the most ridiculous of odds, this massive guy and the cheese bringer guy that his brothers didn't think that he was worth anything at all, says, God's protected me in the past, and I believe that God will protect me and give me victory over this Philistine. I often wonder about Saul, though. When Saul says, go, the Lord be with you, I wonder, is that a statement of faith? Or is that a statement of, you are the only person who's shown any remote interest in doing this? You're the man. May the Lord be with you, almost like a may the force be with you, Star Wars style. You've got an unlikely kid, a warrior giant, Saul realises that, man, this is not going to go out well. He's like, you can have my armour. And not like David, he's like, I haven't tried it. I've never tried this one before. Let's, let's go without the armour. I'll take my shepherd's staff. I'll take a couple of smooth stones from the river. And out we go. No protection whatsoever against this giant. So you can understand why Goliath kind of mocks him. Imagine going out to that guy with his 57-kilo jacket. you got no protection at all. Well, no visual protection at all. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, and that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. David's confidence is not his slingshot, It's certainly not in any protective armour because he hasn't got any. His confidence is not in the previous experiences he's had with lions and bears. His confidence is the Lord will fight his battle. The Lord will deliver you into my hands. He doesn't realise the Lord doesn't need a sword or a spear or a javelin to work defeat. And because of all this, David is able to act in bold defiance to what his eyes can see that everybody can see with their eyes. Because he's not limited by what he sees. And as surely as he's spoken, that smooth stone lodged into the forehead of Goliath. He fell down. David took Goliath's own sword and cut his head off. Like if you're talking odds... When you're getting stones, wouldn't you want at least one with a pointy bit, not nice, smooth, rounded stones that are actually... And how does that sink into someone's head? Then Abner, the commander of the army, presents David before Saul, as well as Goliath's head. Say, this is the man who has defeated him. But maybe amidst all of this action you've forgotten the thing that was said in the previous chapters. The kingdom has been taken from Saul 
and is given to a neighbour who is better than you. Yet this better neighbour is deeply loved by Saul, is working in service of Saul and keeps him in close service. Not only has God drawn David and Saul together, but also Saul's son, Jonathan, an unlikely ally. Now, in those days, families were pretty loyal. I wonder how Jonathan would feel about David if he knew that David was this neighbour, better than Saul, who would take over his father's kingdom. But as soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, it says, the soul of Jonathan was knit to David. It doesn't say Jonathan knit his soul to David. It talks about somebody external. God had knit the soul of Jonathan to David and entered into a covenant with him. A covenant whose loyalty we see played out in the future chapters to come. He even gives David his own armour and his own weapons. God had withdrawn his spirit from Saul. He'd given his spirit to David. He was at work and he was guiding David to fulfil his good purposes, giving him success. He had support of the people, we read in verse 5. He went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So Saul set him over the men of war and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now David might not have seen it so clearly but we see it when we read through from the moment God chose him, from the moment he was anointed, from the moment he received God's spirit, God was directing his paths and enabling him to achieve all of his purposes. And we'll see where that heads a lot more in the next few weeks. So what about a reality check? We've looked at so many unlikelies along the way. Now, I intentionally didn't read chapter 17 because it's so familiar. David and Goliath, I I would almost challenge you to find a children's storybook Bible that does not have the story of David and Goliath in it. But wherever it does, that's the only bit that it has, usually from 1 Samuel. You hear about a big giant, little David, there's a, there's a conquering that goes on. But it's almost even become a common expression. Even the Australian film The Castle speaks about that battle of like a David and Goliath scenario. It's, it's language we've started to use as meaning an underdog taking on a bigger figure. But I don't think we're given these chapters to bolster our confidence when the odds are against us. I don't think it's a case of next time that things aren't going your way, you just need to remember that you're like David and and that's your Goliath. What we do see is that God has a plan. God is carrying out his plan. He chooses people. He places his spirit upon them to enable them to carry out that plan. David's father, David's brother, and even Samuel, based on what they could see, didn't think David was the man for the job. They saw others as being better choice. But God doesn't need the skilled people of this world. 
God uses the humble and the faithful. He's also able to provide all of the gifts that are needed. Regardless of what your personal skill set may be. If God wants to use you for something, he will provide you with everything you need to carry that out. I don't need to remind you necessarily that not everyone was impressed with Jesus. Not everyone looked at Jesus and thought, wow, the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. In fact, many people mocked him for claiming to be the Son of God, for claiming to be the Messiah. The prophet Isaiah, even before his coming, spoke of him in this way, saying he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus was born into a humble family. Mary and Joseph weren't even married at that point in time when the Virgin Mary gave birth by the Holy Spirit. He was laid into a food trough. He was labelled even by religious leaders and authorities to be a fool and a blasphemer. Jesus said he had no place to lay his head. And some thought that he was just a fool who got what he deserved and he was crucified on a Roman cross for being a blasphemer and a fraud. But despite people's perceptions, he was the living son of God. He is the king of kings. He was and is God's chosen instrument to bring about the salvation of sinful mankind. When he began his public ministry, the spirit descended upon him like a dove who guided him in all of, to fulfill all of his plan and led him all that way to the cross of Calvary to fulfill God's ultimate plan where he secured an eternal defeat over sin, death and Satan as Jesus died as a substitute for sinful mankind in our place, for our offence, for our rebellion against God. He was raised in triumph. He's now seated at the right hand of God and reigning. He has sent his Holy Spirit to his people and he will return to judge. Remember how some people said, can anything good come out of Nazareth, they said of Jesus? I know my high school teachers and probably yours might say, man, that kid is a lost cause. They're going nowhere. The world will be better off when they're gone. But if you are a child of God, your identity, your worth is not in your list of skills, It's not in your list of achievements. Your identity and worth is you are a precious, chosen child of God. Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, has died on your behalf, has clothed you in his righteousness, has indwelt you by his perfect Holy Spirit to guide you, to equip you, to carry out the good purposes and plans of God. He'll guide you and equip you in the general call to all Christians. As we read the scriptures, God's will is all throughout there, what he wants of his people. 
the very same Holy Spirit that inspired those words, calling, saying, this is how we live in relationship with God and with one another, is the same Holy Spirit that dwells within you. Remember that. Next time you read something and go, that's too hard. Remember that the same Holy Spirit that inspired those words and calling you to it is the same Holy Spirit that indwells you, enabling you to walk in the light of that truth. And as the giver of good gifts, the Holy Spirit is able to use you, not just to select few, every single one of you, if you are a child of God, for the building up of his body, for the making of disciples. Because God uses every single child that he chooses. There's no, there's no divide in the body of Christ between those who are helpful and useful and those who are dead weights or passengers coming along the way. All are useful in the hand of God. All are gifted for the building up and blessing of his body. And so we live by faith. Live by faith, providing and trusting in the strength which he provides saying, God, achieve your good purpose in me. Help me to walk in humble and faithful obedience to be used by you for your glory, we ask. Let's come before God in prayer. Heavenly Father, I confess that far too frequently I judge, perceive and estimate futures by what I can see. Lord, even what you have clearly outlined for every one of us, we sometimes look at with doubting eyes. Lord, it's not just a thing we memorise, but the very truth that the fullness of your spirit dwells within us. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We are never under-equipped. Lord, help us to, to diligently seek the things that you have laid before us and trusting that you have provided us with the Spirit, the ability to walk in those things. Lord, thank you for all of these people in this room that you have gifted, that you have called, and that you will use for your good purposes. Help us to see beyond our limitations, our weaknesses, our vulnerabilities. And help us to cling to you, to walk in obedience, and to give you thanks for the ways that you work in us and through us, for the building up of one another, and for the calling of people to the wonderful offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. And next week we'll be looking at 18.6 through to 19.24.